From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. Band of Brothers is 20 years old this fall, this autumn. It was first broadcast on HBO on September the 9th, 2001. There we go. The series won an Emmy and Golden Globe Award in 2001 for Best Miniseries, as you'd expect. It's based on the historian Stephen Ambrose's book of the same name, Band of Brothers, and it follows the journey of Easy Company, part of the 2nd Battalion of the 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment of the 101st Airborne, the Screaming Eagles. As they train in the US, they jump on D-Day. They fight through every major action from then until VE Day. It's obviously a series that many people listening to this will rank among the best TV they've ever seen. I'll never forget watching those episodes 20 years ago, particularly from that moment where Lieutenant Spears runs across that farmyard, that terrifying, shrapnel-infested hellscape to shout some instructions at some of his men who are having a, a momentary lapse. It's packed, packed with extraordinary depictions of the Second World War. It was also packed with brilliant actors for whom it was a springboard to brilliant, brilliant careers. In this episode of the podcast, I'm going to talk to one of those actors, Robin Lang, who played Bob Heffron. And I'm also going to talk to John Orloff, a writer on the series, a Second World War fan, for whom, as you'll hear, this was his dream assignment. So it's going to be a good one, folks. It's a special episode, this one. You're going to love it. If you want to watch programs about D-Day, if you want to watch programs about World War II in Europe, I've got a place where you can go. I've got a safe place where you can go and watch those shows in peace and with the sophisticated commentary of real historians, not the breathless voiceover that you might find on a mainstream channel. Just go to History Hit TV. HistoryHit.tv is the web address. It works in America. It works in Canada. It works in Micronesia. Wherever you're watching your TV online, on a smart TV, on your devices, you can watch History Hit TV. Head over there. You get 14 days free if you sign up today. HistoryHit.tv, folks. Go and check it out. In the meantime, though, here's the very brilliant John Orloff and Robin Lang. Robin, thanks so much for coming on the show. Not at all. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Now, like so many people, I watched you back in the day, my mind blown by the scale and ambition of that drama. But tell me who the character was that you were playing and also your real life interactions with him. I played a man called Edward Beeb Heffron. Everyone knew him as Beeb, which came about because when he was born, one of his older brothers couldn't say Edward. So he just called him Beeb and that just stuck with him for his whole life. He was from South Philadelphia, sort of Irish extraction. He was a very slightly shorter than me. <laughs> he was a very short man. I think was given a dispensation because of a vital work that he did on ships. But Everyone else was going and he decided, I think he, he got his dispensation and just kind of, he said he tore it up and just put it in the bin. And off he went with everyone else who was going on this. I guess what, as someone late teens, early twenties must have seemed like a great adventure with no benefit of foresight as to what was to come. 
You must have been so nervous meeting him back in the day. Yeah, that was quite... Uh, uh, <laughs> it was a nervous moment meeting him for the first time. We'd spoken on the telephone a number of times, which in itself wasn't easy because he wasn't a man to be found in his house. He was a man who liked to get out and about. He always used to say, you won't find me dead in bed. And he was always up, out, and didn't come home until quite late at night. Yeah, you know, I don't mean late, late at night, but I mean late in terms of me being able to phone him from Britain. So I eventually pinned him down at sort of two o'clock in the morning, British time, <laughs> when I spoke to him the first time. So we'd spoken on the telephone and then eventually I met him on set. He and Bill Garnier came and visited us while we were filming. I was shooting that day and I arrived. Quite a number of people had already been speaking to him for a while and I arrived and someone said, oh, Mr. Heffron, you know, this is Robin Lang who's playing you, you know. And I said to him, well, it's real nice to meet you finally, babe. I'm babe, you know. And he said, oh, great to meet you, kid. Why don't you let me hear your accent? And I said, oh, I, I actually, I was just, he said, I'm just messing with you, kid. I'm just messing with you. And that kind of set the tone for our relationship really it was always a lot of fun we had some great conversations and some great nights out um, <laughs> that night in fact was the first of many and on that amazing set which at the time was unprecedented for the kind of accuracy the ambition of it especially for tv mm. were they going like hey it wasn't like that you know stand a bit more like this i mean what was the interaction with them like if you ask them about things, you know, specifics like that, would you have done this? Would you have stood like that? They say, well, no, we wouldn't have done that in the day. You know, you would do this and you would never do that. But only if they were asked. They were very aware that it was a drama and that it was based on the book that Stephen Ambrose had written. And they weren't precious about it, you know. Sometimes you would mention a scene that you'd already filmed and so it was done and they say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, he didn't say that. And you're like, what? <laughs> They knew they'd been checked in with by the producers and writers. So they knew that things would be attributed, events and dialogue would be attributed to different people, you know. Your character, Babe, comes in as a draft, as a replacement. Mm. And in the same way that, like, as an actor, you must have done that as well. Was it weird? Like, did you feel like you were a little newbie going in with a grizzled group of veterans when you went on set? It did feel a little bit like that. And I think that was by design by Captain Dai and the cadre. I think that was their plan to create this hardcore who went through the two-week boot camp, which was a pretty gruelling process that they went through. And my boot camp was just a single day, you know, learning about the weapon that I was to use and doing some basic field manoeuvres. And so, yeah, when people arrived, they were given a sort of slight side-eye by the veterans of the, uh, of the televisual campaign. I was afforded a slightly easier ride because of who Babe and Bill had become. They were the sort of, they weren't the spokesmen for Easy Company, but they organised a lot of events and they went around schools talking to kids and they were very active in that kind of thing, working with school kids and organising the reunions and things like that. So they had become really big figures. So because of that, I was afforded a sort of, by proxy almost, a kind of, slightly warmer welcome but I was still made to you know there was the things they would do if you left your weapon lying around someone would steal your weapon and then someone would point out to Captain Die. they would say hey where's Babe's weapon and I'd say it's right oh you know and he'd be like right come on have friend drop and give me 20 and you just had to get down and do it 
And you would get some people who say, oh, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not doing push-ups, you know, and that went slightly against the grain because they'd all had to do it at boot camp. So there was that kind of feeling that if you did your bet, then you were kind of accepted and part of the group then. What was it like filming? I mean, the Bastogne scenes that we all remember so well, and the cold and the snow. And I mean, how challenging was that to film? Emotionally, it was quite tough. Physically and geographically, it was a very controlled environment. It was an aircraft hangar. They built the forest within this aircraft hangar. And then I think I'm right in saying the, it's still the biggest painted canvas ever used. They stretched a canvas all the way around the perimeter of the aircraft hangar, this prospective forest going off into the distance. If you blindfolded someone and took them into the middle of the aircraft hangar and then took the blindfold off and said, where are you? They'd say, I'm in the middle of a forest somewhere green and verdant in the middle of winter. I'm not quite sure what's going on. The biggest issue was that it was August, I think. It was a hot summer and we were in a metal aircraft hangar which heated up very quickly. And all of us were acting cold, which involves making yourself shiver. And the last thing you want to do when you don't want to get even hotter than you already are is <laughs> sit and do pretend shivering. So on more than one occasion, the shout of cut would come and you say, did I forget a line? And they say, no, no, there's sweat running down your nose. We just need to mop that up. So th that was a challenge on occasion. But the challenge of existing in that arena and believing what was going on around you in order to facilitate your acting, it was no challenge at all because it was all there. It looked incredible. And when trees are exploding and the ground's exploding and you're running full pelt and that's just madness around you. There's kind of no acting required, really. You're just trying to get where you're going. Not in one piece. I don't want to overstate any element of danger, but everything's catered for in terms of the reality of the situation for you to just get on with your work. You lose your best friend who you promised to look after. Mm. It sounds like it wasn't hard getting into character for that because it sounded like it was very immersive. Yes, it was. Mark, who was there, who played John Julian, even when he wasn't in shot, he stayed for the, the scene. So he's lying there kind of in pieces and the, the machine guns are firing and the squibs are going in the ground and you're just trying to do justice to an event that it's interesting you mentioned that particular event because that was one of the scenes that I was particularly determined to do justice to I really wanted to get right because losing John Julian was had a big impact on Babe and um, I don't want to say he didn't get over it but it really stayed with him because they were really close and they had made that sort of pact with each other that if one of them went the other one would get the other guy's stuff and make sure it got back to their parents as Babe says you know I'm supposed to get his stuff and bring it to his ma it was important for me that that was properly done justice to and I, I like to think we did we achieved that the other scene that i think must have been really hard to achieve is the concentration camp it's so difficult mm. to recreate that let alone try and act and it must have been a huge challenge that yeah i remember the first day of being taken to that set and you came up you actually see it in the show they drive along a sort of woodland track and so you're there's these tall trees either side of you and and then you come out into this opening and it's a full-size concentration camp just in the middle of a forest in Hertfordshire. It was really quite stark and it was dressed. You know, there were a lot of extras 
a call must have gone out for very, very thin people. So there were a lot of extras and various other animatronics and things like that. But there were also just piles of these bodies, just these dolls, you know, these so mannequin, really realistic and lifelike dolls um, sort of littered about the place. And it was really, it was a quiet week. Generally, my memories of the whole shoot are of the battle scenes and fun and having a laugh and, you know, the camaraderie and all that. But that week was a really different week and stands out in my memory of the shoot. Everybody was very respectful and I think affected in different ways by that week. Did you know when you were part of this what impact it would have? No, no. I genuinely had no idea. I knew it was a story about a particular company. I knew they were real people. During the audition process, I read the book and I thought, wow, you know, these are an incredible bunch of guys. And I knew it would be a big show because it was HBO, but I don't think anyone could have predicted quite the impact it's had on, I think, on the popular conscious, but also for each actor, I think, personally, I I doubt very much if any of us have been part of a job that's had the same impact. It's completely unique, you know, and not just in terms of your career, you know, that's undeniable when you look at the people who the two big stars back then were Donnie Wahlberg and David Schwimmer and you look at the cast now and it's a sort of roll call of Hollywood leading men and screenwriters and television directors and it's incredible but on a more personal level I think the impact it's had is unparalleled you know we all have relationships with the families none of the men are left but we all have relationships with our families you know I'm very good friends with Babe's daughter, Trish, we are regularly in touch and we visit each other. She comes to Scotland and stays with us and she brings family of hers, nieces. And there's a kind of generational ripple effect. And then the inter-cast bond as well. We're all still in touch. The UK guys have a WhatsApp group and a picture popped up yesterday of Lieutenant Harry Welsh, Hubler, Shifty had gone out for lunch because Bill Randleman was in town. Pete McCabe, who plays Hubler, he said, uh, God, I haven't seen Mike for about 18 years. And after about five minutes, it felt like I'd only seen him about three weeks ago. And it's always like that. I reconnected with some of the guys, maybe 2016, and hadn't seen them for the best part of 15 years. And we just picked up where we left off. And it sounds slightly cliched, but it's not. It's, we really did just pick up where we left off because we were together eight months. And it was quite a, an intense period to exist together. Any other scenes that are particular favourites of yours, special to be part of? Oh, to be part of? Um, the baseball field at the end, there's something quite joyous about that. And there's something sad because within that sequence in the show, they, they remember all the people who didn't, who didn't make it. It's a joyous scene, but it has a kind of melancholy to it as well. As far as I recall, they just let us play baseball. And I think they'd kind of long-lensed quite a lot of it. So they shot things from quite a distance away. And so they've captured some really nice moments in it. There's a lovely shot, and it's Rick Warden and Donnie Wahlberg, Lipton and Harry Welsh, sitting on the jeep of a car, and they're absolutely killing themselves laughing. And I've asked Rick, I said, what was said? He said, I can't remember. He said, we were just having a laugh. But there's just something really, really touching about that sequence. I find it really sort of uplifting and, as I say, a little bit melancholic at the same time. 
Yeah, it was awesome. It was awesome. It was better than some Top Gun volleyball equivalent. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Dan Snow's History Hits. We're talking about Band of Brothers on its 20th anniversary. Hello, if you're enjoying this podcast, then I know you're going to be fascinated by the new episodes of the History Hit Warfare podcast, from the Napoleonic battles and Cold War confrontations to the Normandy landings and 9-11. We reveal new perspectives on how war has shaped and changed our modern world. I'm your host, James Rogers, and each week, twice a week, I team up with fellow historians, military veterans, journalists, and experts from around the world to bring you inspiring leaders. If the crossroads had fallen, then what Napoleon would have achieved is he would have severed the communications between the Allied force and the Prussian force, and there wouldn't have been a Waterloo. It would have been as simple as that. Revolutionary technologies. At the time the weapons were tested, there was this a perception of great risk and great fear during the arms race that meant that these countries disregarded these communities' health and well-being to pursue nuclear weapons instead. And war-defining strategies. It's as though the world is incapable of finding a moderate light presence. It always wants to either swamp the place in trillion-dollar wars or it wants to have nothing at all to do with it. And in relation to a country like Afghanistan, both approaches are catastrophic. Join us on the History Hit Warfare podcast, where we're on the front line of military history. American politics are all struggle and strategy, passion and persuasion, and so much scandal. And they always have been. I'm Don Wildman, and on American History Hit, we're delving into Alexander Hamilton, whose bio was big enough for Broadway. From war to women and a dueling death to boot, Hamilton is a fundamental chapter of the American tale. Join me and a cast of worldly experts to meet the real Alexander Hamilton on American History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Can you hear me, sir? Yes, hello. Thanks for doing this. How are you doing? Good. I'm excellent. Thank you. Hey, Robin. Good evening, John. Good to see you. Good to see you. It always disturbs me when one of the actors speak with their 
original accent. It's a little like, Whoa! John, I of think, course. John, we should discourage. <laughs> I mean, actors shouldn't be allowed to speak anyway, surely, unless. Well, exactly, unless they have well written dialogue. <laughs> um, John, you're kind of Hollywood royalty, right? Tell me about you and your Ooh. family's relationship wow. with the silver screen. I'm fourth generation Hollywood. My great grandparents were a radio team, very popular during World War II in America, called uh, Fibber McGee and Molly. And it was sort of a radio sitcom team. And then their son married my grandmother, who was a B movie actress in uh, movies like The Big Sleep. And then my father was a commercial director. My brother's an Academy Award winning sound mixer. So, yeah, I'm full tilt, family business. And you also, you have a passion for oh, World War II, right? Always have been. Always been obsessed with World War II. As a kid, my favorite movies were, you know, Patton, Guns of Navarone. Yeah, World War II films were what I loved. What a dream. In the 1990s, someone comes to you and says, we're going to spend the most money it's ever been spent on a TV show, and we want you to write the whole thing. It's going to be about the Second World War. I mean, it must have been unbelievable. Well, I begged for it, quite frankly. I had been having meetings with Tom Hanks about a whole nother project, and I had said, oh, I hear you're doing this World War II thing. And he was like, no, 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 never going to happen. We have one writer writing the whole show, this chap, Eric Genderson, but thank you for your interest. And then another meeting or two meetings later, Tom suddenly says out of the blue, hey, you still want to work on Band of Brothers? And I'm like, uh, yes, please. And he immediately says, well, do you want to write the D-Day episode? Uh, okay. And so that's how I got involved in band. And then after I wrote Day of Days, Tom read it and said, okay, you want to write another one? And I was like, uh, sure. How about uh, the concentration camp episode? Uh, okay. Now, remember, these are my first paying jobs in Hollywood. It's 1999 about four or five years after Schindler's List and only one or two years after Saving Private Ryan. So I'm being asked by Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg to do the D-Day episode, which is, you know, Saving Private Ryan has the greatest D-Day sequence in history, and then do the concentration camp episode. So it was quite daunting. Yeah, but you nailed it, man. Don't worry about it. Oh, thanks. Phew. The relationship with the veterans seemed to be at the heart of what you guys were doing. I mean, did you spend time with them? How did that work as a writer? Yeah, I spent a, a lot of time with them. The first thing I did when I was hired was went to one of their reunions in Denver, I think, um, and spent the weekend with Babe and Wild Bill and Compton and Malarkey and Lipton, basically trying to remain coherent while they kept on drinking. I don't know how much Robin has mentioned how much Bill and Babe could drink, but uh, they could drink anybody under the table and were totally stone sober. By that point, I already knew I was going to be doing the Breakcore Man or D-Day sequence. So my focus was very directed to tell me about Breakcore Manor. So I was talking specifically to those guys. And then in a parallel track, I was talking to Dick Winters. Dick never went to the reunions. I think he only went to one or two in 40 years. And so Dick and I would talk on the telephone. So the veterans were a constant source during pre-production and writing and production and even post-production, totally involved the whole time. So if you're writing a show set further back in time, they're not alive, it must be a bit more free. Like, is it almost like 
constrictive when you're trying to write a show and you've got these guys in your head, you've also got the audience and you don't know how far to push things and how kind of naughty to make them or... I like limits. It forces your creativity. And I sort of like to say Dick Winters dropped into Nazi-occupied Normandy in the middle of the night with nothing but a trench knife and by the end of the day had captured and destroyed four 105-millimeter cannons. Now, if you can't make that interesting and dramatic, then maybe you should be doing something else. I mean, like, what do you have to make up? What do you have to push? It's all there. So if you pick the right story to tell, you don't have to make stuff up. I will never forget watching that sequence, that scene. And it's a great honor to meet the guy who wrote that. That's very exciting. What are your two or three favorite scenes that you're proudest of? Be boastful for a second. Well, I think the whole Braycor Manor sequence as a single bit of filmmaking and writing you know, it might not feel like it was written, but every single shot was written. Every single moment in that 20-minute, 25-minute sequence was written. And I'm super proud of it. They show it at Sandhurst. They show it at West Point. I'm very, very proud of that. I guess equally the drop sequence, you know, nobody had ever seen anything like that or even understood what that was like. So to share that with an audience I thought was really special. And then I guess finally, when Nixon in episode nine, Why We Fight, when Nixon goes to the concentration camp in Landsberg, the second time when he sees the German civilians burying the bodies and locks eyes with that woman, I'm very proud of that whole sequence. Just got one more, you feed John, and I'll bring you just a question to both of you to finish up with. So John, sure. Masters of the Air, now everyone's super excited. I know it's yeah. embargoed. I know it's top secret, but give us a little something. What's going on with Masters here? Well, I've been working on it for eight years. We are finishing filming by Christmas. We've been filming since April, and um, it's really big. It's very, very big. We have air battles where there are 1,500 airplanes in the air. It's very big. Yeah. <laughs> And the basic premise is this is about fighters, about bombers. What's going on? We follow one bomber group from July 43 to VE Day. And I can say this, that bomber group, real bomber group, arrives in East Anglia in June of 43 with 36 airplanes, 36 B-17s, goes on their first mission July 24th of 43, Ten weeks later, 34 of the 36 have been shot down. Right. That's insane. Yeah. Now, let me bring Robin in just for one last bit of interaction. Robin, just for both of you, what is it like being part of the, the graduating class of Band of Brothers? Is it something with pride? Is it occasionally like, geez, I've worked in other projects, you know? I mean, I have other aspects of my career. Not for me. No, not at all. I think I said this to someone recently. You know, I've played other historical characters, but I've never got to hang out with one of them. And I've never been sort of nominally responsible for their legacy, in a way, or their memory. And so, no, it's afforded me, as I mentioned earlier, professionally, a great many opportunities. But personally, it's enriched my life in ways that I could never have imagined when I was going to those hotel rooms to, that sounds really 
dodgy. Uh, <laughs> there was hotel rooms to meet Tom Hanks for auditions. Um, back then, it was a big job. And now it's a point at which my life changed irrevocably for the better. How about you, John? What impact has it had on you? Everything. It changed my life. Like I said, it was my first paying job in Hollywood. But more than that, it was the most important thing I'll ever do and the most rewarding and the most emotionally relevant in my life. I think of those guys almost all the time. And we just mentioned masters and it's a big difference because we're making masters, but none of our characters are alive and I've never met any of them. And it's a very different experience than sort of being the caretaker of a story of men that you know, as Robin just said. You know, it's different knowing Dick Winters and these guys and telling their stories right. It becomes very, very personal. And to then be part of something that has this wider impact is really spectacular. I mean, about two or three months ago, I'm shooting in England right now, and I was at a pub, and a 30-ish year old English veteran from Iraq and Afghanistan, a couple of tours at least, was having a beer next to me and heard that I had worked on band and interrupted and said, you know, Band of Brothers got me through my PTSD when I got home. And that's not a normal television show. Yeah. John, I can see you wincing every time Robin speaks because he's speaking words that you haven't put in his mouth. But is it a different thing when you're the writer? Because your hard work, your late nights, presumably come way before filming starts. Robin's intensity comes from being in that big warehouse covered in fake snow. Do you have the same intensity, do you think, when you're on location? Or are you a bit more detached once filming is underway? Oh, God, no. Not, not detached at all. In fact, some of the biggest fights and arguments happen. Uh, as, I've got a as... box full of pink, yellow, green, purple, salmon, goldenrod pages to attest that the work is never done of the writer. Ever. <laughs> yeah, it's just constant. You're part of it. And it's both frustrating and rewarding. You know, I, I had an experience where I was on the set for episode two, but not on the set for episode nine. So I've sort of had it both ways, and they're equally frustrating. I'm sure. Well, listen, guys, thank you so much for talking to me and spending time on the 20th anniversary. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. I feel we have the history on our shoulders. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.